for you. <laughs> now my hari mai, piki mai, kaki mai, kiti farine. Ko Noel McCarthy, tene, tena koto katoa. Kia ora. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to our session, Burnham Wood. Thank you very much to Platinum Bowl patron Teresa Gatung for making this session possible. Namihi nui kia kwe. If you could please turn the ringer off your phones. You can take videos if you want, um, but please turn the flash off your camera. But if you've read Burnham Wood, your phone is probably at the <laughs> bottom of your bag, turned off and wrapped up in plastic already. Not plastic? No, not plastic, no. of course. Tinfoil, tinfoil. <laughs> <laughs> They're always listening. Burnham Wood is the third published novel from our guest this evening. Her first book, The Rehearsal, won her the Best First Book Award at the New Zealand Book Awards in 2009. Very prestigious award. Her second book, The Luminaries, set in 19th century Hokitika, won her many prizes, including one called the Man Booker Prize. You may have heard of it. <laughs> yeah, why not? She's gone on to move into screenwriting, adapting the luminaries for television and producing a screenplay for director Autumn DeWilde's gorgeous and sparkling film adaptation of Jane Austen's Emma. And now comes Burnham Wood, a page turner, bristling with big ideas about certainty, morality, culpability, complicity, the importance and limitations of idealism versus pragmatism, the perils of ambition, the limits of friendship, the applications of environmentalism. It all centers around the clandestine activities of a rogue gardening collective from Aotearoa and a secretive billionaire from America, both full of ideas and stratagems, both intent on furthering their own ends. They meet in the deep south, and it all goes a bit kablooey. There's a good keen pest eradicator turned knight of the realm and has no fool wife in the mix as well, plus some cutting-edge surveillance technology, an extremely endangered parakeet, a private army, and a bit of LSD thrown in for good measure. <laughs> plus some guns and a putative podcast maker, all of the makings for an extremely contemporary, highly enjoyable recipe for disaster. <laughs> Back in Aotearoa to talk about Burnham Wood, please join me in welcoming Eleanor Catton. Thanks, Noel. Kia ora. Um, so how this will work is we'll talk for about 50 minutes and we'll leave 10 minutes at the end for questions. Um, it starts with a landslide, this story, and it ends with a prayer. In between, there are several explosions, a lot of weaponry and technology, guns and drones and car chases. It struck me reading it and thinking about what you've been doing for the last few years, that if this was a screenplay, it would be very expensive. <laughs> Was that enjoyable for you? 100%, yeah. Um, when, when I started writing this, 
book. I'd already been working as a screenwriter for quite a number of years. And I sat down kind of remembering the, the total freedom that you have as a novelist. You don't have to work to a schedule. You don't have to work to a budget. There's no producer telling you that something's going to be too expensive. So I sat down, I rolled up my sleeve, and in the first sentence of this book, um, there's a, a landslide, five people are killed, a, 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 a truck goes over a precipice, um, plows down through a um, virgin native bush and then explodes on a, <laughs> on a um, viaduct. And it was, that was just me thinking, I was like, I'm back, this is great. You know, nobody's, <laughs> no, nobody's going to tell me that this, 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 mm. this kind of can't be done, you know. Yes. Um, and so was that a deliberate decision? I guess it was to lean into spectacle as part of this story. Or did, did the spectacles announce themselves as the story unfolded? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if I would have used spectacle, but I, I definitely um, came to this uh, book really wanting it to be a book that was unashamed of its genre aspirations. I just wanted it to be thrilling, a, 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 you know, good, good fun kind of... Mm. From, from start to finish. Um, the book doesn't really pick up its pace until quite late. And I've, I remember feeling quite a lot of anxiety while I was writing it, because I'd already told everybody that I was writing a thriller. And I was thinking, oh, shit, I, people better start dying quite soon. <laughs> 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 I'm already on page 200, you know. <laughs> well, you get five out of the way on page one. True, yeah, yeah. Which is very much, I mean, I, I did, you know, in retrospect, it's easy for me to say this now, but I realize that there is a very clear statement of intent in that first in that very first page and in that very first scene as well. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I'm. Yeah, it's funny, kind of looking back on how the novel, how, how the novel's plot took shape, and remembering kind of what happened when, um, because it wasn't actually at the very, very beginning of writing it that I realised that the that landslide that begins the book as you later discover, it was not an act of God. It was not a, a natural disaster. It was, in fact, a man-made disaster, though um, everybody in the book doesn't know it at the time. And well, once I kind of got to that place, I, I, I realised that that was, that was a kind of a thesis, in, in, in a sense. Um, it was kind of getting at the books uh, it, 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 as, as close as possible to an environmental message, I suppose, that... You know, to, to say that these things that are happening around us that appear to be natural events are, are, are in fact man-made events. And yet, you know, it's very visual, that first paragraph, as we've discussed, but it also introduces that theme of the implacability of nature. I mean, you say, because the temperature was dropping, the days were getting shorter, it would be some time before the bodies could be recovered in a, you know, a really economical way. Nature as a force is being established here as well, isn't it? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Great. I mean, uh, I'll, I'll I thought that. you knew. <laughs> <laughs> it reminded me a lot of the secret history. Oh, great. You know, oh, that, so that first yeah. opening scene, I don't know if there's Secret History fans here, but, you know, I, I think they say the snow was melting in the mountains before Bunny's body was found. And I thought about Donna Tartt and those themes in the Secret History because, you know, it's about a bunch of young people who are quite cool and funny, but also not quite as smart as they think they are. Right. And who... Um, who have to bear the consequences of their actions in ways that they don't 
imagine or foresee, which I feel goes to the heart of what's happening here, doesn't it? Right, that's interesting, yeah. The, um, <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's interesting to bring up nature as a force because um, in, in, in a way, when you write a book, you, you do have complete control over everything, including yes. the weather, including, you know, natural disasters. You have, there's, there, there, there is kind of so much is within your purview. You can make the, the book last for as long or as short of the characters' lives as you want. You can kill them off willy-nilly, you can make them kill each other. She says, smiling. Um, <laughs> and I think that because of that, there's this um, great uh, responsibility almost, as, as a, especially as a novelist of plot, to check that power, because you, you have so much power that you can always create some sort of deus ex machina to get yourself yes. out of any problem. Um, and one of the kind of writing maxims that I've always really liked uh, was something that was once tweeted by, um, it's terrible to talk about a tweet, um, I feel ashamed, but um, <laughs> the, uh, anyway, the, it was once tweeted by one of the, the uh, story editors at, at Pixar, the, the uh, animation studio, and they said, um, using a, con a, a coincidence to get your characters out of trouble is cheating. Yes. Using a character, uh, a coincidence to get your characters into trouble is is great. That's that, that that's <laughs> wonderful. And so I feel like that about the about kind of beginning this this book in a very almost kind of a stage setting kind of way. I knew I wanted a, a an environment that I could control. So I want I wanted to invent a national park, invent this part of the South Island of New Zealand, in order to have. A, a kind of a cul-de-sac situation where it was one road in, one road out, and I could I could kind of control the players. Um, but because be, but because that you know I was I was kind of um, I was I was I was controlling so so much I suppose yes. that then raised the stakes on in, in terms of. It, it becoming necessary for the characters' actions to feel more and more like their own, to, so, so to, to, to feel as though, um, you know, that, that they have the appearance of free will. You know, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's this kind of funny thing that you, you, I think, especially in a plotted novel, especially in a formalistic novel, in order to feel as though the ending has been deserved, you can't ever feel as though the characters have been stage managed. You have to use, you have to do all of that design in terms of the stage setting before the book begins in a way, in terms of how they're arranged. And look, we'll get to the ending. I just need to steal myself. <laughs> so, um, and there will be spoilers when we get to the ending, I think I should say, because I want to talk about it. Oh no, it. People, are, people are saying. <laughs> Maybe we'll give you like a 30 second time to get to the door before we discuss it. <laughs> I'm not surprised. I mean, what you're saying, Eleanor, sounds, it sounds as though as an author of novels, you feel a sense of responsibility to your reader. And I'm not surprised to hear you say that. You know, that is something that I think has always been a feature of your work. That's something you take quite seriously. I think so, yeah. I think it's a responsibility to I, I wouldn't want to put too many caveats on the responsibility. I think that it's a it's an important responsibility that you need to trust the reader and 
trust the gift that they're giving you of their time and their attention. You need to, you need to make it worth it. Yes. Um, so you need to do the hard work so that they don't have to, essentially, or, or so that they have to, but in a different way. Um, but I, I, I don't, I, yeah, I, I'd want to stop short of, of qualifying that any further, in a, in a way. I don't think it's your responsibility as a writer to, to, to you know, I, I, to, to, to make anybody think anything in particular. I think that it's, it's important to write books that hopefully make people think and make, make them reconsider the world that they live in. But, but I, I, wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to go any further than that. You wouldn't want to be more prescriptive than that. No, I don't no. think so, because I think that, that, that it kind of comes back to free will again. It's very important to respect the reader's maturity and, and, and the fact that people can read books in, in so many different ways. You know, they've, they've, everybody who reads a book reads, reads a different book, reads a different essen book. essentially. Yes. Um, I appreciated the choice. I mean, this is a, a story full of people essentially doing things. They're all doing things. And again, given what you've spent the last few years doing in terms of script writing, I'm very interested in how your, um, your thoughts about drama and the sort of the usefulness of drama as a way of of putting characters in the world as fully rounded beings mm. comes into play because all of these main characters, Mira, Shelley, Tony, the younger ones, Robert Lemoyne, the secretive American billionaire, the older characters, they are all, you know, they are what they do for better or for worse, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, the, the, there was certainly something that was foremost in my mind when I was, I was writing this. Um, I'd, I'd been thinking a lot about the fact that basically for all of moral history, the kind of moral history of humankind, there's been this really important distinction between saying something and doing it. So if I say, I, if I, I tell you all I am a good person, and then I go off and I do something really terrible, who I am is what I have done. It's not what I've said I am. You know, there's that yes. very, very important distinction. <clears throat> and that, that distinction is how we get hypocrisy, people who say one thing and do another. Um, however, what I've got, I was kind of noticing in, in, in the world as I was kind of um, observing it, it, online, that distinction disappears. So if, if, if online you say something, if you, you tweet something or you post something, um, the difference between saying that and having done that, whatever it is, if you say, I stand in solidarity with the people of Ukraine, or whatever, on online, is that solidarity? Is, is that you doing solidarity? Well, there, in online, kind of, yes. That, that, well, that, you're performing you know, it. Right, the, the, there's no distinction between saying and doing. They, they, they kind of are the same thing. That's quite terrifying, isn't and it? And I, I think that it has really, really, um, troublesome com uh, kind of uh, effects that, that I think we're, we're importing that, that online logic back into our real lives. We, we, we've lost that distinction between saying and doing. And, I, and so I, I kind of coming back to the novel as a, a form that is so kind of deeply, kind of inescapably moral mm. because it is, it's a um, time-bound form which shows people's actions and then the consequences that issue from those actions. Not only that, but also the intentions that lead to the actions that might not be, you know, they, they, these things might not match up. You know, you might have good intentions and, and, mm. and, and, and kind of something might go awry. Um, 
that I, th I is I, that why it ends the way it ends? Is that why they all die? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm betting that most people here have read the yeah, book. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, but I also think it's important that we talk. I'm sorry if you haven't. But I think this is worth talking about, isn't it? Because you're talking about consequences of actions. Yeah, right. Well, I, I think that there's, there's a great pleasure in reading a novel, just seeing people do something, uh, seeing a character do something, you are free, as, as the reader, to then judge them by that action. They're not just telling you that, that, that they're a good person. It's so different than reading somebody's online Twitter feed or their online Facebook feed, because there's no, there's no kind of performance element. There's no, you're, 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 you're free to kind of assess them on, on, on their own terms. Um, and it kind of, to speak to the ending of the book, I suppose, I, I always knew that I wanted this book to be uh, tra tragic in the Shakespearean sense. And it was, that, that was connected to the book's ambitions as a satire. I wanted it to be a political satire that would satirize all of the, uh, um, all of the characters kind of equally in a way, that nobody would get a free yeah. pass, nobody would kind of emerge as the hero of the book. And I, I knew that they, I needed to have some sort of a devastating, totalizing ending in order for that satire to work. Because if, if somebody were to emerge victorious or even just be spared in some way, they would, they, they, they would be being treated differently. And so I, so, so I always knew that I had this kind of catastrophic ending in mind. Um, but what I didn't know was how I was going to get there. Get there. And, um, whether they were going to um, start killing each other in terms of, um, you know, whether it was going to be murder or manslaughter, and who was going to die first, and in what order they were going to die after that, I didn't, I didn't know any of those uh, answers. Um, and, and quite, <coughs> quite. So honestly, the last few years must have been fun. It was great fun. Yeah, they were all on the chopping block at one point, and um, so <laughs> I was, I would consider each of them, um, and. Uh, and I, and it, yeah, yeah, it was, the, and, and that, that was quite fun. So I, 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 um, <laughs> I, I really believe in kind of um, keeping that tension alive and uh, as you're writing a book between knowing where you're going, have a very, having a very firm sense of kind of the feeling you want to leave the reader with or the effect that you want the book to have, but at the same time preserving that ability to surprise yourself I think is extremely important because if, you, if you're not surprising yourself, you're, you're, I don't think you're going to have a hope of surprising the reader. Which brings us to both Shakespeare and Jane Austen. I think, and I'm, not, I'm just trying to decide which one to start with, and I might start with Jane Austen because, you know, having, I think I was about halfway through the book when I heard you talking about it and talking about um, Jane Austen as a really important influence on, on your writing of this, and, and I was thinking, you know, between the gun battles and the explosions and the drugs <laughs> and, and, the, um, and the billionaires and the planes, I didn't necessarily see that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but having, you know, having looked at, at, at your adaptation of Emma in particular, you know, the, the, um, the misdirections or the reversals, the yeah. psychological reversals that take place in what is, you know, essentially a story about young people, a young woman coming to knowledge, knowledge of herself. Yeah. W was that the important sort of thematic starting point for the younger characters? Yeah, I mean, I, I had started seeing Jane Austen when I was um, reading and rereading Emma with a view to adapting it as, 
um, being very much kind of the heir of um, Shakespeare, actually, the kind of the heir of Shakespearean comedy, um, the idea that everybody kind of must get married at the end, but that that, that formal necessity ends up kind of uh, placing a focus on, on how to get the characters to that ending in a way that feels as free as possible. It feels as though they've made a free choice rather than having been shoehorned by a kind of a, a form. Um, and w w one thing that I absolutely love about Emma as a novel is that, you know, I Emma Woodhouse, the uh, main character, is she's just she's a monster. You know, she's she's so self-involved. She's snobby. She's just she's she's repulsive in, in, in so many ways. Um, <laughs> she manipulates her friends. She's so full of herself. Um, impossible, impossible to not to love her. It's just absolutely impossible not to love her in this book. Um, but the way that the book is designed, uh, you know, I've, I've very consciously actually modelled um, Burnham Wood on Emma, which seems kind of ludicrous when you, when you really think about it, but it's also a book in three volumes, which is this, uh, my books in three parts. And at the end of the first part of Emma, Emma's first great mistake that she makes, where she um, uh, mistakes the in intentions of, of the town vicar for um, her friend, Harriet Smith, when actually the vicar's um, uh, trying to get with her. Um, is, is a mistake that I, I absolutely guarantee, I will put very good money on this, that everybody who reads Emma for the first time can see that mistake coming. Mm. It, it is very obvious in the, first, in the first volume of the book. But what this does is that when, when you, because you see it coming, you start thinking to yourself, oh, I'm a bit cleverer than Emma. You know, <laughs> she doesn't see that, but I do. And you start feeling a bit superior towards her. You feel like you, you start kind of thinking... Th thinking as though your, your, your intellect is superior to hers, which is exactly the quality <laughs> that Jane Austen is going to go on to satirize in Emma herself. So she's kind of, she's tricking you into adopting the, 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 the quality that she's going to be making fun of in this, in this kind of grand way. And there's this way that the book kind of makes you become Emma by the, by, by the end of it. You're, you're kind of complicit in her, in her, in her blunders in a way. By the time you get to the, the second great mistake Emma, Emma makes, nobody, I, I don't think, I would again lay good money on this, I don't think anybody can see that coming because... We're going to spoil Emma <laughs> as well. Um. I don't think, I think that would be a bridge too far. I don't, I don't think we can do that. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I think that there's this, there's this way that the, the, the satire is kind of working on you. And I, I really took that as my model in, in, in this book. I wanted... Um, Maybe it sounds a bit psychopathic to say, but I wanted to, I wanted people to come to the book, and perhaps be feeling a little bit smug in their political convictions, as we all are, and think, okay, this is a book about young activists. Well, I'm young and left wing. I'll probably find myself, you know, the the, the victorious hero of this book. But actually, to to kind of the the, the book wouldn't wouldn't allow you to um, feel that self satisfaction. And and one of the reasons why that was it was. This was my ambition with it. Is that I, I was just feeling more and more that the lives that we live online, that are so algorithmically determined, are pushing us so much more towards this kind of self-satisfied kind of existence with the world, where you know if, if, every time you open your phone, you Google something the search results that you receive are based on all of the, the other things you've asked your phone before. And so that you're not getting 
real answers to your questions. You, your, your phone is conforming itself to what it thinks that you want. And it's kind of, it's, it's paving the way, it's smoothing the way between you and just a perfect reflection of everything you've asked it in the past. It's kind of, it's, it's calcifying you, you know, it's, 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 it's shutting down the freedom of your mind. Flattery. It, 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 exactly, it's, 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 it's flattering you. And so, and I, I, and so I wanted, I wanted the book to be this kind of anti, anti-social media environment. I want this. I, I really did not want this book to flatter its reader, but I think that in in a way, not being flattered is kind of the ultimate um, compliment. In a yes. way, it's a compliment to your maturity as a We're reader. Treat, you're can, treating us like adults. Right. You can handle it. You know. You don't. You don't just need to be. You don't. You don't need to be infantilized in a way that I think social media infantilizes us. That's an interesting. Um, way to contextualize the sense of brutality that, that you can feel having read this, you know, the sense of coming out of this and feeling like, you know, that there is a, a downbeatness and a completeness to, the, to, to where the story finishes, and yet somehow it manages to be uplifting. I'm, I'm not sure why, because of the life the lives that have been contained within it, because of the ideals that have been discussed within it, I mean, maybe I'm too much of an idealist, but uh, the, the most moving parts of this book for me were the parts that talked about love. You know, um, Mira at the beginning of the story is grieving for a friendship, isn't she? You know, and there's a happy marriage. Was that, you, you know, how did you get the balance? How did you strike that balance between the dark and the light? Yeah, I guess, I guess in my mind there's a, there's a big difference between tragedy and nihilism. Mm. You know, and, and nihilism, kind of nothing really matters. Um, and you know, kind of everything's kind of a fait accompli, you know, who, who, who cares anyway? Every, everything's just you know, um, rubbish <laughs> in a kind of nihilistic worldview. Whereas, whereas tragedy gets you to a point where you see that things could have been different, that things could only have been different, you know. Um, and it, I, th I think when you arrive at a tragic ending, you start looking back at all of the, the cumulative decisions that led to that ending. So when I was putting this book together, what I, I, I really wanted was to try and kind of design it in such a way that it would be the failures of communication between the characters that would end up leading to this, this kind of ultimately tragic ending. So in, in almost every character's storyline, so the, the, the book follows multiple points of view. There's about kind of uh, six or eight points of view in the book. Um, the, uh, Mira, who you mentioned, um, has intuited that her best friend is really chafing against their relationship, wanting to leave, wanting to kind of pursue her own path. But she just can't get over herself and talk to her about it. She can't tell her, "Look, I've, I've, I've seen that you're. You know, what can we do about this? Like, I, I, I see this about you." Equally, her friend has not. Shelley has not, has not communicated that to her. If they had only communicated this to one another, literally everything else would not have happened. Um, and that's true of every character's storyline. So, if, if Tony, for example, um, Mira's kind of one-time flame had only. Uh, told her that he had returned to New Zealand and, you know, that he wanted to talk to her. Mm. Um, if he just communicated that, 
nothing else would have happened. And that's where you part company with Austin, really, don't you? Because uh, uh, m more often than not in Jane Austen's stories, those reversals get reversed again. You know, those complications come right in the end because we've all got to get to the church. You know, there's, there's right. got to be a wedding. Right, but I, w I would say that, that that's just, that's the comedy, that's the Shakespearean comedy. Um, that a tragedy still needs those two reversals, but it just, it just turns them in the other way. You know, it, it turns them towards tragedy rather than towards, um, uh, towards comedy. Yeah. The, the, you, you've actually touched on the, the kind of my biggest takeaway after uh, studying screenwriting. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd always, you know, when many people when they'd learn creative writing at, at primary school and, and, and at school, they're taught that a, a story must have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Was I don't know if you know, people you, you were taught this, and this I hadn't I never understood this piece of advice. I just thought it seemed to me the most moronic thing that anybody could possibly say. It was so <laughs> obvious, but also so um, kind of opaque. Like I didn't I didn't understand why you couldn't just have a beginning and a middle, or why you couldn't go from a beginning to an end, or why you can't why, why you couldn't begin in the middle. I just didn't get it. And then I started studying screenwriting and, and indeed uh, reading Emma, and I realised that actually the reason why that is good advice. It's not anything to do with the blocks of action. It's to do with those two turning points. That you need, you need a point in any story that, where something is ironized one way, and then that, that, that ironization is then ironized again. There's a, there's a twist one way and then a twist the other way. And those two transitions, which in kind of screenwriting language are often called the turning point and the crisis point, they have this symmetrical relationship yes. to one another, that one, one causes the, the other one. And, and, and that's how you get out of the beginning and into the middle. And it's how you get out of the middle and into the end. And once, once I realized that, this kind of light bulb went off in my head. I think I've, I've never approached writing different, uh, you know, the, the, the same uh, after that. Yes. Um, it sounds as though that apprenticeship in screenwriting, you know, which sounds like it was self-done, you know, it was self-taught, was, was very fruitful for you when you came back to apply it to fiction. Yeah, it was actually. I, I've, I, I read a lot of screenwriting books. The, the, the book that I, I always recommend above all others is a book called Into the Woods by John yes. York, a, a marvellous book. Um, it's really about story structure. It's just about how all, all stories, in a sense, they, they, they have this kind of parabolic shape. They, and, and there's a reason for that. You know, there's a reason why protagonists and antagonists need to be opposites with one another. Um, and I, th I think that going back to Jane Austen made me, it, it kind of gave me a lot more respect for, for screenwriting manuals in a sense, because Jane Austen, of course, lived 100 years before the first film. Um, and yet everything that's true about screenwriting as a, as a craft can be found in her, in her novels, you know. <laughs> so I, I kind of, I, I started realizing that these were things that were true about stories, not, Story, yes. not true about an industry. Yes. Um, well, she is a sort of a proto-screenwriter as well. Um, you know, she said famously, or Henry James misquoted her saying, you know, that she was a miniaturist in terms of her milieu and society working on two inches of ivory. And with this book, you have a much broader canvas, but at the same time, it's a particular place and it's a particular time. This book is set in 2017 in Aotearoa, New Zealand. What did that allow you to do? 
Well, I, you know, it's funny. I, I first had the idea for the book um, and imagined it as a kind of a, a book that was going to be set in the near future, actually. A kind of, and it kind of got brought back to a kind of an alternate present. And then, um, uh, very inconveniently for me, um, J uh, Jacinda Ardern <laughs> was elected in this country and um, promptly changed a lot of the laws surrounding foreign ownership of property <laughs> that I was hoping to satirise. <laughs> and um, I was very cross at her. Annoying and, when that happened. Um, and so I realised that I was going to have to backdate the book a little bit. Um, um, but then, uh, <laughs> it, so actually it's very funny, it takes place in the pretty much the six weeks right before she comes to power. <laughs> I'm glad we're nailing uh, it down. <laughs> yeah, right. um, but then, of course, COVID happened, which I think, so I think I probably would have ended up backdating it um, for, for that reason anyway. Um, but it's, it's interesting that, you know, I was always, I was very aware that I was writing a period piece, actually, because so much of the language, um, a, lot of, a lot of this uh, book takes place, um, you know, a, a, a it kind of dramatizes conversations among young activists on, on, on the left. And the way that the language has changed, even in the, in the last six years, has it meant that I kind of had to block out a lot of contemporary conversations. I think that there are a lot of terms that are used in this book or, or kind of stances that are taken that... That, 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 that wouldn't be taken these yes. days, you know. Well, Tony's still getting told to check his privilege. Well, that's in. a good thing, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's the music and those terms for me. I mean, Fleet Foxes and The National, you're setting it in a particular... There's a moment where one of the characters puts on Fleet Foxes, I think, to drown out <laughs> Checkpoint, which really <laughs> puts it exactly in the moment. But, you know, there's a beautiful line where you talk about, you know, the, the route of 2016 and how that had led to a new mood of deference towards the radically unforeseen, you know, which absolutely captures that moment that we'd, we have all lived through now, you know, it's been. And, and what came with that was agitation being made urgent again is another line. And I wondered, does that relate to you? Like, does any, there's so many ideas in this book, you know, so many ideas about surveillance and about social media and about um, capitalism, politics, you know, so many different things. But I wondered in particular that idea of agitation around that period, you know, was this something you were personally becoming more aware of, you know? Were you protesting, was that? I remember I, I, I marched against the TPP bill in Auckland, um, and that was in 2015. Just out here. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and was very struck actually on that protest by um, I'm sure many many people here were there. Um, the the uh, police officers that lined Queen Street had these long lens cameras, and as we marched past, they would just lift the cameras up and 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 you know, just take a portrait and then kind of eyeball you and put it down again. And there was something just so intimidating about it and just so menacing that, that, that you know, they were fixing your image to, you know, maybe use in future. Like, we'll, we'll just see how things plan out, you know. You know, you're doing something totally democratically acceptable. Um, and I think that there was, the, I, I was so chilled by that. And I think that yes. the, the spirit of that definitely made it into um, Burnham Wood a little bit. Well, it's since um, been the subject, I mean, not at, in a protest context, but it's been the subject of investigation. Police oh, interesting. Unfairly, especially. Right. Um, yeah, it happened in, in Masterton, near where I live, actually. Police right. were photographing illegally, as it turns out, photographing especially young rangatahi in the area. So, oh, gosh. you know, that... that that happened? Yeah, yeah, so I, I think that with the broader question about agitation though, um, 
I think it's made the, the, the kind of where the political conversation has turned. I even hesitate to, to use the word conversation, actually, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. It's one of my um, biggest bugbears is that the, the tagline for Twitter, join the conversation, the, the kind of logo, I think it's one of the biggest lies in the history of, of kind of advertising. What should it say, slogans. like just sell your data or <laughs> sign up to be harvested or... Well, yeah, yeah, just kind of, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you were on Twitter. Um, I, I was, I, I was for several years, yeah. I was. And then... Um, and yeah, and, and, and left, I, I can't even remember when I left, probably around about the time I started thinking about this book, um, really. But yeah, I think, I think that the, the, the kind of the tenor of, of, of the political, I, I, I don't know to call it a conversation, but the kind of the, 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 the issues that are in the air. Um, I've, I've totally forgotten the question. Mm. I'm, I'm so sorry. I have two. Oh, okay. We good. were talking. I think we were talking about agitation as oh, it related. Oh yes, yeah. To, that was a while ago. Now, oh yeah, no, so. no, no, no. Yeah, I, I remember I was going to that. That, that um, I, I think that there's this this great um, pressure on people to be constantly using their quote unquote platform or their their voice to be saying very particular things very very loudly on 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 these kind of deeply troublesome. <laughs> you know, platforms and kind of on, on online environments. And, and there's, there's a great, there, there's kind of a great pressure to, to be, um, I, I don't know, to, to, to be agitating in a, in a very particular way. And I found myself emotionally really withdrawing from that and becoming very suspicious of it and feeling like the, the novel actually has a, a, a case there, there is a case to be made for the novel in a way that it, it, it almost has never had before, I think, as a, as a form. There's, there's kind of an urgency, a responsibility, uh, there's virtue in the novel. And so I, I, I feel, I, I feel that, that spirit of agitation, but it's kind of, it's been directed more into my craft in Into a way. your work, yes, yeah. because, uh, you know, just to talk about you, the person, for a moment, it strikes me when you're talking about this, you know, that the other thing that had happened, you know, we're talking about sort of 2016, the other thing that had happened to you, Eleanor Catton, personally, is that, you know, around 2013, you became very famous. You know, you became a very visible person and somebody that people were photographing, you know, and, and somebody that, that attention was being paid to and, you know, in lots of ways, I see the attention you're paying to these ways of tracking people and looking at people and harvesting data. How much of that do you think does come from your sort of your your own personal experience? You responding creatively to your own personal experiences. I, I think probably all of it. Yeah, yeah. I think it, it, it's a, it's a really it's such an interesting experience writing a novel because it's. It's, it's kind of like going to therapy, <laughs> except for you didn't realize you're in therapy until after the book's published. And no, you that's think, a oh, memoir. Oh, yeah, yeah that's a memoir. <laughs> no, it's a novel. Um, but of course, you know, that you're, you're mining your own subconscious. You know, you're, you only really, there's only really one person that you know from the inside out, which is yourself. And all of the characters that appear, appear to you, mm. that kind of want to be created and want to be drawn, are are kind of arising out of your own experiences and they're, they're cobbled together from things that you've read and observations that you've made. Um, so I think that this, this book definitely has a, a great suspicion of um, 
I, I don't know how, how, how impoverished the online world really is. It's, it's not really in the action of the book, mm. but it's in the, it's, it's in the kind of the subconscious of the book. And, and, and that, I, I would say, probably definitely arises out of my, uh, my experience. Your own experience. Um, a, a lot of the research, actually, of the book came out of um, the experience that I'd had in early 2015 when I was um, kind of singled out by John Key, the then Prime Minister of the country. What's that um, like? Um, Oh, it wasn't very pleasant, actually. Yeah. Um, but, it, I, it, I mean, it kind of seems funny to recall now, but um, I, I had made these com the kind of um, mild comments about him at, at a, um, or his government, I should say, not even about him personally, at an overseas uh, literary yes, festival yes. that then he, he kind of incredibly responded to on, on national television to kind of um, uh, tell you, the New Zealand people, to um, stop listening to me. Um, and you know, it, it, it's kind of easy, easy to 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 think that maybe this was just I don't know a, a kind of a trivial experience, but it, it, it's quite interesting having talked about it overseas. And when people overseas kind of learn about about kind of how everything shook down, how how, how shocked people are that 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 that, that it really happened. Um, but one of the one of the consequences of that was that I became I became very worried after that happened that I actually didn't really know what I was talking about and that that maybe you know I'd, I'd use terms like neoliberal um, to, to to describe his his government that maybe I didn't really know what that what that meant you know and so I, I went away and did a lot of reading I, I started reading a lot about political theory and um, um, kind of economic theory just what kind of wanting to. If, if, if that ever happened again, I wanted some kind of things in my pockets to be able to kind of bring out. And, and funnily enough, that, that became this book, so, you know. <laughs> so this book, with its skewering of the, the national character, the obsession with property, you know, the fault lines in society, in some ways, is kind of could be read as the, you know, the response of the smartest girl in the room. <laughs> who's <laughs> gone off oh, and sort of done the work and, you know, and had a good think about things. This yeah. is what happens when Eleanor Catton has a good think about things. <laughs> oh, um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we, the, the obsession with property here is, is intense, you know. I think, I've, I've been touring a little bit with this book, it came out a couple of months ago, and I, I often tell people overseas that New Zealand, um, doesn't have a capital gains tax at all when we when we are kind of talking about the book and, and the New Zealand obsession with property and nearly always there is a gasp in the room Pe people are people are very surprised by that it's 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 quite shocking actually <laughs> and it's it's so strange that it's that it's it's so normal and 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 that you know it, it it's so normal <laughs> I don't know to the point that that you know, to, to even to suggest changing that is just met with such kind of outrage. You know, the the, the idea that the, the the top tax rates in this country are incredibly low compared to the um, you know overseas. Yes. Um, again, people are very shocked when they learn that. They have this impression of New Zealand, I think, as a very, very progressive, um, very benign, very kind of friendly, egalitarian country. And it's just, I, it's just not true. I mean, I don't, I don't think that that's true any, anymore. And I, I, I don't, it, 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 it annoys me, kind of as a New Zealander, it annoys me that the, the, the country is able to trade on that image while also perpetuating this kind of gross economic injustice against the poorest members of, of, of this country. I just don't, 
I've, I've, I've you know, become very boring about the, you know on this question because I'd, I'd just love to talk about taxation. <laughs> <laughs> We've got all night. Um, writing from a distance, did that? Do you think that clarified your vision? You know, or was there a sense of anxiety about? You know, it's interesting to me that Aotearoa is still a sort of an artistic preoccupation for you. You know, this is the place where you chose to set your story. This is the landscape you come back to. But you're writing, you were writing, I think maybe part of this during a pandemic when you couldn't come back. Right, yeah, that's true. See, I, I, wrote, I wrote all of this book overseas, actually. Um, yeah, I think, you know, the, you, you have to have a great sense of authority to, to, to feel as though you can tell a story. I think that that's, that, that that's really important and that that can be built up. I, I, I often approach a novel, I approach this novel by reading a lot, especially non-fiction, very early on. I'm, I'm a hopeless gardener and a lot of this book involves gardening. So I read a lot of garden guides and homesteading manuals and, and kind of dictionaries of native plants. And was that, that kind of out thing. of interest? Was that sort of Jane Austen related? You know, I wondered <laughs> about the sort of that connection, and I'm being serious with this, like yeah, I'm yeah. not being funny, but you know, with that connection with the natural world, watching Autumn de Wilde's Emma, there is so much beautiful, you know, flower arranging, foliage, you know, all of that features very heavily. Was that, or had you already been thinking about this? Oh, you know what? No, that was that. That wasn't that. Yeah, that kind of didn't come down through um, Jane Austen at all. I, in, in fact, actually, one of, one of the things that I I most love about um, Jane Austen's work, all, all of her novels, is um, how little description there is in, in, in them. Actually, they, they are pure narration from start to finish. Every line is is making the clock tick forward. Everything is doing some sort of narrative work. The clock has never stopped so that she can describe, you know, a, a, a grand house or a, 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 a park at length Same. or anything like that. Um, yeah, so that, no, but I, but, you know, kind of building up this, this sense of authority early on in the project, doing a lot of reading, taking a lot of notes, um, kind of figuring out what I want to say. Um, I think, I think that, I, I, I could imagine setting a book elsewhere in the world, but I, I, I think that building up that sense of authority, that sense of permission would be so much, it, it would take much longer, I think. I, I think I would, I, would, I would feel as though I was trespassing. I would, I would need to be very sure of myself mm. if I were, I were to write elsewhere. Elsewhere. You, you make a, a sort of an effortless case for the revolutionary capacity of horticulture, you know, which is not <laughs> a sentence I ever thought I'd say. <laughs> you know, I remember hearing about this book first and thinking like, guerrilla gardening, you know, it's an oxymoron, it's like guerrilla embroidery <laughs> or watercolors. But there is such, I mean, the, the, the passages about gardening and about Mira's love for gardening, they're very beautiful and, and pure. There's a purity in, in that. Yeah, I think uh, th there's a quote actually from uh, the philosopher Emerson that I, um, I always come back to where he says, um, every, every natural fact is a symbol of a spiritual fact. And so, you know, when you climb a mountain, a mountain isn't like adversity. Adversity is like a mountain, and so it, it, it's the other way around. And I think that it's definitely true that when you participate in something like gardening or um, you're, you're in the outdoors, you're communing with nature in some way, you don't feel as though you're giving the meaning to 
the activity. You feel like you're receiving the, the, the meaning from the activity. And I think that there's something really profound and beautiful about that. And one of the ways in which actually the, um, just to come back to my, one of my favorite topics, um, the, 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 the online world um, is so barren and so soulless is that there's no, we, we, are, we have to give meaning there. We can't, we can't derive any meaning from it, you know, and I think that there, there's no wonder that mental health is in such a pile of state um, because, because we are spending time in these environments that are designed to be addictive, they're designed to be manipulative, um, they, they, are, they are designed to, ha ha to kind of extract meaning from us. They're not, they're not giving us meaning. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I'm going to clap for that. <laughs> Um, we're coming to the time when we will have some time for questions, so if you want to have a think about if there's something you'd like to ask, Eleanor, there are microphones at the front here, I think here and here. Um, the lights will come up in a couple of minutes. Um, I just want to briefly talk about psychopaths. Oh, great. Um, you know, you mentioned that earlier, and Robert Lemoyne is such a gift of a character. You know, I, I, at different points in the book, I'm wondering, is he an, you know, is he an actual representation of evil, or is he just a billionaire? Is he the devil, or is he just a billionaire? Um, what, you know, what were your intentions with that character? Uh, well, I read a lot of books about psychopaths before kind of um, approaching him as a character. Um, I really wanted him to have a, a God complex, and so there are, yes. if you read his sections, there are kind of allusions to, to God and Jesus Christ and so on, all, all, all through his sections. Um, I, I, I was interested in, our, in, in the way that we fawn over billionaires, in the way that we reward, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, psychopaths who are often billionaires, um, uh, in, in, our, in our culture, and in, in, in the way that we reward them, you know, that we, we, we're so fascinated by, you know, kind of wanting to know what, what, what goes on inside, uh, inside their head, what makes them tick. And the idea that we would have that kind of, that, that same kind of fascination for, you know, a, 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 somebody who devotes their life to sacrifice, who is an altruist, for example, it's just, it's just laughable. They don't have the same mystique. Right, we, 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 it's, it's not only that they don't have mystique, we also doubt their authenticity at all. We say, okay, pull the other one, let me, yeah, let's, I, okay, you say you're old, an altruist, all right, yeah, yeah, come on, let's, yeah. you know, So you think we mistrust goodness? I do, and I think that, that it has not always been like that. I think that that, again, is, a, is another um, instance of online logic starting to infect the way that we, we have... I, I, I think that our, what we believe is possible in human nature is becoming diminished. You know, I think, I think that we have, we, we're losing a sense of respect for all of the ways that human beings can change and human beings can inspire one another and, and that love can kind of um, be this force that, that, that propels people into different versions of themselves that they, they, they kind of didn't, didn't knew, know was possible before that, that love entered their lives. I think, I think we've, we've become very cynical as a, I don't know, as a globe, I would say, yeah, as a and society. The, the book achieves that, the, the novel, the story achieves that despite the darkness, doesn't it? You know, the great tenderness that we know that Tony feels for Mira and Mira feels platonically for her friend that, you know, the, the Darvishes have as a marriage together, you know. 
love is kind of more powerful than data in this story, isn't it? Like you can have all these people with all these different points of data, but at a critical moment, it's kind of no match for what a wife knows her husband right. is going to do or not do. Yeah, yeah, and I, see, I guess it's the difference between a fact and truth. You know, it's a, it's, there's, there's, there's information and there's knowledge. And actually Lady Darvish's knowledge of her husband, she, she just knows him as a person. That is what enables her to, to kind of do, do what she does at the end of the book. She, she just, she, she won't be fooled because her knowledge is superior to Lemoyne's information. Which takes us back in a way to Macbeth, but unfortunately the, the clock is running down. <laughs> and I, I do want to give people time to ask you some questions because I think they will. Um, can we bring the lights up so we can see? I kind of can't believe we haven't talked about Macbeth. I can't believe feels, we haven't feels either. Strange, I mean, yeah. should, should we just try in 30 <laughs> seconds? Maybe what was the most important part of Macbeth for you in, <laughs> in writing this story? <laughs> Or maybe not. People are waiting. Um, would you like to ask a question? Yeah, if I could. Um, Eleanor. I don't know where I'm looking. Are you up the top? Oh, thank you. Yeah. Oh, good day. Hi. Hi. Um, I couldn't help noticing that the title of your novel is the same as name as the famous wood in Shakespeare's Macbeth. Oh, brilliant. And so I'm wondering, is there a... Is there a connection between the two? Oh, thank, thank you. you so much. Perfect. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> yes. Um, yes, so I, I, I went back and I reread Macbeth actually in, in light of everything that happened in 2016 after the election of Donald Trump um, in, the U in the US and the Brexit vote and this kind of new sense of. Um, Fear. I think this kind of the, you know the, the the climate crisis was suddenly feeling very very real, very imminent. Um, the future was rushing at us very very fast. It seemed, and I went back to it, and um, I, I had always been taught at high school that Macbeth was a play about ambition. That was always the the word that had been associated with it for me. And when I went back and read it, I thought this. I don't think that this is a play about ambition. Actually, I don't. I don't. I don't really think that that's that, that's what's going on here. It suddenly seemed to me to be a play about about certainty and about how dangerous it can, how dangerous certainty can be, but also how seductive certainty is. When somebody tells you, as the witches tell Macbeth in, 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 in the play, we know what's going to happen to you. We know what's going to happen in the future. We, this, you know, this is, this is a statement of certainty. There's something just so, it's such a relief to be told that. And I think that the, the kind of bad actors in the world often have the gift of, of of, of, of that kind of certainty. But of course, Macbeth then becomes addicted to receiving these prophecies. He, he is first told he's gonna be king, he thinks brilliant, he goes and kills the king, becomes the king. He kind of believes that by, by, by his certainty, he can make the future come about. And he gets seduced into this position where by the time you get the later prophecies, he, he goes back to the witches again and again. And at the end of the play, they tell him these, these, these three things, they tell him, beware of Macduff, no one born of woman shall ever harm you, and um, until the Burnham Wood Forest comes to the castle where you live, you'll never be defeated. He then hears these statements as statements of certainty. He can't hear any nuance anymore, and that, that's his downfall, that he, he thinks, okay, well, everybody's born of woman, so that must be another way of saying I'm never gonna be, nobody's ever gonna harm me. And forests can't move, which must be another way of saying I'm never gonna be defeated. And so he kind of loses the ability to see nuance in a way that, 
that, that, that he needs to. And so I, I wanted to take that as a kind of a guiding idea in this, in this book and to, to, to show how certainty can kind of lure you into well, kind of into tragedy in a way. That, because that, every that, one of these characters is a Macbeth and every one of them has a Burnham Wood, which is a kind of a shorthand for the thing you didn't see coming. Right, yeah, this, the kind of a, a blindness that arises out of certainty, um, which in a way, it's, I mean, it sounds kind of crazy to say, but I started seeing Jane Austen's Emma yes. in a very similar way, that I think that Emma also is a book about blindness, and that she, it's because she's so convinced of her own righteousness that she makes the catastrophic blunders that she makes later in, in, in the book. You know, she, she is the rudest person by far of, of anybody in the book, but she prides herself on the fact that she is never rude, and it's because she prides herself on that that she makes that, that error. And I, I just think that there's something really, really important to learn in that, that I think that we, we often have a way of talking about politics these days where we think, well, I'm on the side of the right, and so that means that anything that I say any, any means that I might use to achieve my ends will be justified because I'm right. And I think that that's very dangerous. Mm. Would you like to ask a question? That was a great question to lead into because my um, question actually was starting off with Shakespeare um, because I read the book. I picked it up because of the title and you may or may not be aware but Shakespeare was very much in the news last year for all the wrong reasons. And um, there was an element of that that was actually questioning the relevance of Shakespeare and Aotearoa today. Um, and I'm not going to ask you to answer that one because that's a little dangerous, I think, as well. But there were other aspects of Shakespeare that I read in this book and the connections with it, including the parts which I'd never actually thought of, Jane Austen, which is another one of my favourites. Can you take what you said before and expand it into... into contemplating for us, for our benefit, that other connection aspect, the drama, the characterization, et cetera, please. Yeah, well, I think, I think in, in my mind, the, um, the, the, the great connection between those two writers, um, it has to do with irony. And more and more, I, 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 I feel this kind of evangelical, I don't know, uh, faith in, in, in irony as, being incredibly important to take seriously in terms of the human condition. You know, the, this idea that our opposites are inside us and that if we deny that, that is the surest way to become that opposite. You know, it, by, by saying, I can do no wrong, as soon as you really believe that, you are toast. You know, you are, you are going to do something very, very wrong as, as soon as you believe that. And dramatic irony which, you know, obviously Jane Austen excelled at dramatic irony in the novel, but then also in Shakespeare, all of Shakespeare's plays, there are these arcs of irony, is this way of taking a character almost to, to the opposite place. You know, a character declares they're never going to get married. Guess what's going to happen to them? Um, you know, a, 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 well, I mean, there are many examples. Um, and I, I think that there's something that's... That, that's very important to learn there, that I think that we, we have become quite suspicious of irony as a culture, actually. I think that we, we have this idea these days that irony kind of codes conservative, that if you, if you are speaking or thinking in a way that is, is ironic, that you're, you're kind of taking the mickey or you're not taking, you're not, you're, you're not, you're yeah. not taking things seriously enough in a way that is serving the status quo rather than 
sub subverting it or, um, or, or whatever. The book talks um, about the rise of authenticity, you know, in that particular moment, and, and it didn't, you know, it didn't necessarily sound like a good thing in all contexts. Oh, yeah, I mean, we only started becoming obsessed with authenticity when, I, when we became kind of, you know, so digital and kind of online yes. and kind of so false, you know. <laughs> um, Which again, again, it's another great irony. And know. it goes back to Macbeth, doesn't it? Act like the flower, but be the serpent beneath. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and so I think that, that, that just, just kind of considering, c considering irony, I think, is of, of, of great, great value as a society. And I, and I, I kind of, I was, I was thinking about New Zealand in that, in that sense as well, you know, this, 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 this country that, 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 that prides itself on, on a certain kind of um, international image, but maybe what is really happening is, is you know, ha has to do with the opposite of that, or participates in the opposite of that, I should say. Thank you, brilliant. Thank you. I'm going to try and squeeze in one more question, um, but we're almost out of time. Would you like to ask a quick question? Hello, Eleanor. Hi. Welcome. Um, my question is to do with uh, something I read a bit, a bit um, it's more about the Lumineers really, but I hope that's okay. Yeah. I remember reading that you, um, in writing the screenplay, wrote an enormous number of screenplays before you settled on what was, you know, you were happy with. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us the main difference between writing a screenplay and writing a book? Well, I think, I mean, there are so many differences. I think one, it sounds kind of boring to say, but one big difference is a, screenwriter, a screenplay is commissioned, whereas a book isn't. And so when you write a screenplay, you're writing for a boss, and the boss can tell you, um, well, I mean, in, in very material terms, you don't own the screenplay that you're writing. It, it, it might exist on your laptop, but it, it's not your property, and it, and it never was and never will be. Um, and so that means you have, to, you have to answer to other demands than, than, than kind of, you know, the, the, the artistic demands that maybe um, would, you, you'd brought to bring to bear on a novel. Um, I, gu I guess another big difference is that nobody goes to see a screenplay, they go to see a film. And so who, who you write a screenplay for is not the audience in, in, in one sense. You're writing it for the people who are then going to be inspired by it, hopefully, in order to go away and remake it, you know, through their various talents in, in, into a, into a into a film, and so there's a there's a way when you're writing a novel that you're communing directly with the reader. You know exactly the experience that the reader is going to have because you can see the writing on your computer screen that they are then going to see when the book is published. Whereas a, a screenplay, anything could happen. You know, be, between writing the the scene that you you hope is going to begin the movie and and the one that um, eventually does. Um, I, I had actually written a completely different ending for the. Um, for the uh, screenplay of Emma, there's a, a line in the novel where uh, Mr. Uh, Emma says to Mr. Knightley, you know, there's, or Mr. Knightley says to Emma, there's this great asymmetry in the way that we talk about, uh, talk to one another. You call me Mr. Knightley, but I, I've always called you Emma. Um, do you think that you could maybe call me George? And she <laughs> says, oh, no, never. I, I could never call you anything but Mr. Knightley. <laughs> Um, but there is one occasion where I promised to call you by your Christian name. And so I'd written this out, and then I'd had a scene break, and then it cut to them walking into the church, which is obviously the situation she's talking about, um, in order to get married. She said, I take you, George. 
Oh. And um, I I'd submitted this to the um, studio, and they came back saying that um, they, they they didn't like it because they felt that um, modern audience modern audiences wouldn't understand what a Christian name was, um, and so uh, <laughs> they, they they just felt that it was baffling that suddenly the word Christian was there and people would think that they were watching something completely different. And so they, they came back and they said, could you, could you just change it to first name? You know, I, I will yeah. learn, there's one occasion where I will call you by, my, by your first name. And I just said, that is, I, wild horses would not compel me <laughs> to write this. Like, I cannot tell you how, much, how terrible a piece of advice this is. And so I, had to, I just had to, had to rewrite the ending. Yeah. <laughs> ending on a wedding. Please join me in thanking Eleanor Catter. Eleanor will be at the signing table in the foyer very soon. <laughs>